That's taking one for the team there. I didn't see any bruises on your face, Evan, so I guess that didn't hurt. Splunky, different story entirely. Anyway, good morning again. We're going to continue this morning in our series, which we've called Faithful, which is from Hebrews 11, looking at a number of men and women who exhibited extraordinary faith, and they were commended for that. Uh, so far, we've covered Abel, Noah, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, and today we're going to look at a man named Enoch. We're going to be spending most of our time in the first uh, five chapters of Genesis, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, you can. We'll get there in a second. Um, so the question is, who was Enoch, and what do we know about them? Well, first of all, Enoch existed a long, long time ago. He was actually the seventh generation from Adam, which made him his, the Adam's great, 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 great grandson. And so it was a long time ago. He, he was born uh, 622 years after God created Adam. And so it's way back in the book of Genesis. And it's important to just understand kind of where he, he sits in that and in the culture in which he, he resided. Uh, Enoch was a really unusual individual. He's unusual in a number of different ways. And I think in order for us to understand just how unusual Enoch was, we, we really need to go back to the book of Genesis and, and, and find out where he fits in that. And so what we're going to do very briefly, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of Genesis chapters 1 through 4 uh, to find out where Enoch sits and how uh, the context of where he lived impacted who he was and what he did. Genesis 1 is easy. God created uh, everything from nothing. In Genesis chapter 2, God made a man and woman in his own image, and he put them in the garden and gave them one prohibition, don't eat from a certain tree. In chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve, of course, disobeyed God, and then sin entered the world and changed it forever. They ate from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from, and at the end of chapter 3, God kicked them out of the garden. And then in chapter, Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve started to have children. They had Cain and Abel, and a few weeks ago we talked about uh, Cain murdering his brother Abel, and uh, that was not a good thing. And so uh, uh, Cain was um, punished for that, and God, God sent him into exile. Adam and Eve had a, another son, uh, almost a replacement son for their murdered son Cain, and his name was Seth. And so we have this fractured picture of the first family ever to exist, uh, Seth and his descendants on the one hand, and Cain and his descendants on the other hand. Seth and his, and his descendants uh, grew, uh, as, as did uh, Cain and his descendants, but they were separated because of Cain's murder. And so uh, what was Cain's side of the family doing at the time? Well, they were growing and multiplying, but they were mostly an ungodly people. And we see this in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 17 to 24, which I want to read to you this morning. You can follow it on the screen or in your Bibles. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, should just qualify this. This Enoch is a different Enoch than the one we're going to talk about this morning, so ignore him, and you can pronounce it Enosh if you want to, to, to make the distinction. He's just a different guy. And when he built the city, he called it the name of the city after the name of his son. And to, to, to Enosh was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. This Lamech was a piece of work. Took two wives... The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his, two, his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man, 
for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So Cain's line prospered. We see this pretty clearly. He had three sons, one named Jubal, one named Jabel, and one named Tubal-Cain. Great, great names to name your kids if you're looking for them. Jabel started a farming and agricultural business. Jubal was a musician, and he made stringed and wind instruments. And then Tubal-Cain made tools and instruments out of bronze and iron. And so we have a society here, we have a, a culture that's industrious, it's prosperous, it's clever. And, and they, they make things and they do things, but frankly, it was all without God. There's not a single mention of God throughout here. Lamech is a, is a classic example, and I think the reason that the writer of Genesis, Moses wrote Genesis, so Moses was writing this, he's trying to make a point. He's focusing in here on Lamech, not the best guy, but he's probably typical of, of the whole line of Cain, a sinful guy. He's the first guy to commit polygamy. He committed murder and bragged about it to his wives. He was arrogant. He was proud. He was a sinful guy. And so we have this picture of, of, of Cain and his line, and particularly Lamech, that they were, they were uh, a, a prosperous culture, but they were quite ungodly. Ungodly. So on the other hand, what about Seth and his descendants? What were they doing? Well, they were growing also, uh, multiplying rapidly. And what we find about, about his line is that they called upon God. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 4, picking up in verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Cain had killed Abel, and now they have this replacement son named Seth. And it says, To Seth also... A son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So whereas Moses gave us this detailed description of the people of Cain's descendants, particularly Lamech, he gives us sort of just one sentence about the family of Seth, and it's a positive sentence. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But frankly, it's a pretty weak sentence. I think Moses, being a very good writer, if you read the book of Genesis, you, you, you read it carefully, he's sending us a message here. Yeah, these people weren't as bad as the line of Cain. They started to seek and call upon the Lord, but frankly, it's obvious from Moses' comments that their relationship with God was a shallow one. They were lukewarm at best. And so this is the environment that Enoch is going to come into because we're going to find Enoch in chapter 5, which we'll come to in a second. And this was the environment. On the one side, you've got Cain and his descendants who are growing rapidly, and they're clever, they're industrious, and they're, and they're doing all kinds of things, but they're ungodly. They just don't have anything to do with God. They've got murder, they've got polygamy, they've got arrogance, they've got everything going on. And on the other side, you've got, you got Seth, which is supposed to be the good line, but the best thing that Moses can say about him is that they started to, to call upon the Lord. And so you get this idea that, that you've got a very, a, very, a very wicked generation on the one side and a generation over here that's sort of lukewarm towards God. And I would observe that we live in very much the same culture today. Here in America in 2016, that's what we've got, don't we? We've got a culture that's, that's very industrious, very clever, very, uh, very prosperous. Our economy is the strongest economy in the world as a nation. And yet, by and large, we're an ungodly nation. We've left God out of the picture. And yet, in the midst of that, we have some Christians, we have some churches and I would submit to you that there are clearly exceptions, but by and large, we're a lukewarm nation when it comes to our worship of God. And so this is the kind of, kind of culture that we find Enoch entering into. 
So now we get into Genesis chapter 5, and what Moses gives us in chapter 5 is a genealogy. A genealogy is a list of descendants one after another. But Moses does a a real weird thing here. This is the strangest genealogy you'll find in your Bible because it's it's a pattern. And the pattern goes like this. So-and-so lived so many years. So-and-so had a son. So-and-so had more kids. So-and-so died. That's the pattern. So let's read it. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 5. We're going to read uh, quite a long section, 1 through 15. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So this is what Moses says. Here's what's coming. Here comes the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now here comes the genealogy. Watch the pattern. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and called him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all of the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. You see the pattern. It goes on and on and on. So-and-so lived so many years, he had a son. He had other sons and daughters, and he died. Over and over and over. Generation after generation. But in the middle of this, in the middle of this long list of genealogies, we find this guy named Enoch. And he broke the pattern. And Moses is making a point. Because when you get to Enoch's description, it's totally different than the other guys. Let's read it. It's in Genesis 5, verse 21 to 24. It says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And he died. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so the contrast is, is stark. In fact, if you read through this, you've gotten this far. Most of you, when you read through Genesis, so sort of get to about the fifth or sixth one, you go, oh, this is boring, let's skip to the bottom. You will miss Enoch. Enoch is totally different. He's different than all the generations that came before him. Every man that came before him died. Enoch didn't die. Enoch was taken by God off the earth, alive, in bodily form, and taken up to heaven. And it's a stark contrast to the rest of the guys in the genealogy. And there's no, it's, it's no stretch of the imagination to say that this is what, Enoch, uh, what Moses wanted us to focus on when he wrote this section. Enoch is a standout. He's different. He doesn't belong. He was special. So what made Enoch so special? Why did he get this special treatment? Well, let's go find out. There's only 10 verses in our Bible where Enoch is mentioned. Enoch is mentioned 10 times in 10 verses. 10 times in 10 verses. And we're going to look at all of them this morning. We've already looked at half of them, so we've only got a few to go. But we know that there are four things about Enoch that make him special. Four things. Enoch walked with God. Secondly, Enoch was a prophet. Thirdly, Enoch had faith. And fourthly, 
Enoch got rewarded by God. So let's look at those quickly, one at a time. Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. So what does that mean? Well, many of you will know that my wife and I enjoy hiking. We uh, typically, uh, two or three times a year, will get on an airplane and fly to some place because Texas, uh, or at least South Texas, doesn't seem to have any hills, right? If you want to walk up hills, you're going to have to take a highway ramp, and that's not a very safe place to walk. So we go to different places in the country, and we hike. Now, when we hike, we hike together. I know that's a shocking thing. I don't put Karen on one path up and go up the other path and see him each on the top of the mountain or on two different mountains. In fact, if people were ever see us, and when they do see us, they know that I am walking with Karen. How do they know this? Well, it's not rocket science. They see that I'm walking behind Karen. I'm following her. I'm, I'm close to Karen. I'm not a mile or two back. We're together. We're on the same path. We're not on different paths. We're heading to the same place, the same destination, usually a mountain peak, and we're going at about the same pace. I'm not walking significantly faster or slower than she. Now, by contrast, I would not be walking with Karen if I was walking either a mile ahead of her or a mile behind. No one would make the assumption that I was walking with her if we were that far apart. If we were on different paths, or if we were heading to different mountaintops, or if I was walking much faster or much slower. And so walking with God means that Enoch was, 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 was following God. He was near to God. He was, he was close. He was never far away from God. He was walking the same path as God in the spiritual sense. He was going the same speed as God. And he was heading for the same destination. This idea of walking with God is a, is a strong biblical metaphor. It's, it shows up in many places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's worthwhile this afternoon for you just to sit down and, and, and put that in one of your search engines, walking with God. You'll, you'll, you'll see them. The idea is that when it says that Enoch walked with God, it's a strong statement. It, it, it says that Enoch had, was devoted to God, that Enoch was in communion with God, that Enoch was, was in obedience to God, and that he, that he had an intimate relationship with God. Intimate must have been that he, that he prayed to God often and sought God's favor and sought God's wisdom. and He was actively involved with God. Now, in Enoch's day, as it is today. In Enoch's day, that was unusual, right? We had this whole, whole family of Cain, which was very prosperous and, and industrious and clever, but they were ungodly. They didn't have anything to do with God. And on this other side, we had this family of Seth, who, who the best thing we can say about them is they were relatively lukewarm around God. But not Enoch. Enoch was a fully devoted follower of God. And so Enoch was unusual in his generation. Now, the second thing we know about Enoch was that he was a prophet. He prophesied. Now, the reason we know this is we have to actually go to the New Testament to find this. Uh, there's a letter in the New Testament that we call Jude, written by a guy named Jude. Thousands of years, thousands of years, written thousands of years after 
Enoch was scooped up off the earth by God. And in the book of Jude, we have an important comment about Enoch. Now, the part where it appears in Jude's letter, Jude is, is talking about ungodly people, about people who are sexually immoral, who don't want to have anything to do with God, who are, who are, are, are just, they're, they're just separated from God. They reject authority. They blaspheme God. And he goes through this long list. And in the middle of that, in reference to ungodly people, he talks about Enoch. It's in Jude 14 and 15. Judas only have, Jude only has one chapter, and so we don't, uh, so it's Jude 14, 15, two verses. It says, it was also, this is Jude writing now, it was also about these, he's talking about ungodly people. It says, well, also about these ungodly people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so we know we're talking about the right Enoch, prophesied. Enoch prophesied. What did he say? He said, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you get the impression that Jude is talking about ungodly people because he used it four times in one sentence. But what does he say about Enoch? He said he prophesied. So what did Enoch prophesy about? What did he foretell? What did he predict? Well, Enoch... Only 600 years after God had created Adam, predicted that the Lord, Jesus, would come a second time. He wasn't talking about the first coming of Jesus, which occurred at least 10,000 years after his own life. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus, which hasn't taken place yet. Now, how did Enoch know to prophesy about the second coming of Jesus? Well, God obviously revealed it to him. And then Enoch prophesied. And what did, what did he prophesy? What did he say? He said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. The Lord, that's Jesus, with ten thousands of his holy ones, those are angels. That's how Jesus comes back the second time with a host of angels. And he comes to execute judgment. Jesus doesn't come to earth the first time to execute judgment. He comes the second time to execute judgment. So that's how I know, we know that Enoch was was a foretelling, was prophesying about the second coming of Jesus. Now, what is he doing? In other words, okay, fine, he prophesied that, but what was his intention? Well, he was warning the people. He was warning the people of Enoch's day, both those in the Cain side of the family as well as Seth's side of the family, that their ungodly habits, their sinful patterns, would be judged in the future. That Jesus would come back and he would judge them and he would condemn them to hell where they would suffer eternally. Enoch, in the middle of this generation of Cain and Seth, prophesied and warned people about the coming judgment. Enoch walked with God, and I think what he was trying to do is he was trying to turn ungodly people into godly people. He's trying to take these ungodly people and get them to walk with God the same way that he was walking with God. And so he introduced them to God and he was encouraging them. So that's the second thing we know about Enoch. The third thing we know about Enoch is that he had faith. And now you're going to say, oh, finally, we get to Hebrews 11. Yeah, that's correct. We'll talk about Hebrews 11 now. So turn in Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6. Enoch was commended for having faith. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found. 
because God had taken him. It's exactly what it says in Genesis 5. They looked around for Enoch. He was gone. They never found him. Why? Because God scooped him up, took him to heaven in bodily form. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, it says that Enoch was commended as having pleased God. In order to please God, you have to have faith. So the question is, what did Enoch have faith in? Well, it tells us very clearly that Enoch had faith in two things. He had faith in the fact that God exists. That God exists. Even though Enoch cannot see God, could not see God with his own eyes, he believed that he existed, that he exists. And that took strong faith on his part because he lived in a culture that wasn't particularly tuned in with God. And second thing, he, he believed that God would reward those who earnestly seek him. That God would reward those who go to find God, who, who seek after God. Now, Enoch must have known this only by revelation also. We know that this is a promise of God. It's all over the scriptures. Proverbs eight seventeen says, God speaking, he says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Lamentations 3.25 says, the Lord is good. He's good to the soul who seeks him. The point is that those who seek God will, 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 will please him. They will, he will reward them in some way. But of course, poor Enoch didn't have any of these verses because the Bible hadn't been written yet. He was only 600 years after Adam, long before Moses showed up and wrote the book of Genesis. So Enoch believed those two things. He had faith. He had faith that God exists and that God rewards those who seek him. So, three things about Enoch. He walked with God. He prophesied to the generation around him, to the the culture around him, and sought to bring them to God. And the third thing is that he had faith that that God would reward him for seeking after God. And then the fourth thing, finally, is that God rewarded Enoch. He rewarded him. How did he reward him? Well, it's easy to see that. Enoch didn't die. In the middle of Enoch's life, God scooped him up off the earth in bodily form and took him into heaven. That's a pretty good reward. I wouldn't mind God doing that to me right now. How old was Enoch when he got taken up to heaven? Anybody? 375. Sounds old, doesn't it? Sorry, 365. Sounds old. But remember, he lived in a generation where the life, average lifespan was 920 years. God took him to heaven when he was only 40% of the way through his lifespan. If he lived today where the lifespan of an average man is 76 years old, Enoch would have been scooped up off the earth at the age of 30. He was a young man. It wasn't the fact, it wasn't the case that Enoch lived a really long life and as he was kind of on his deathbed, God scooped him up and, and saved him from the last few hours of his death. No, he scooped him up in the middle of his life, in the prime, 30 years old. Well, it's a good reward. Now, I wonder why God picked that particular reward for Enoch. I, maybe I'm weird. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering this yourselves. You're saying to yourself, now, why that particular reward? Why didn't he reward Enoch in a slightly different way? Why this thing? Why did he scoop him up off earth? Well, I thought a lot about that. I have some theories on this. I'm sure you're going to be astounded when you hear them. 
The first theory I have is that he probably was so pleased with Enoch that he wanted to spare him the agony and the pain and the frustration of living in an ungodly world. And so he rewarded him by sort of relieving him and taking him up to heaven. Another theory I came up with is that perhaps Enoch's life was in danger. You all know that in a culture like Enoch lived or in a culture that we live today, a guy who's on fire for the Lord who walks with God who goes around and tells other people that judgment is coming, they typically get rejected. And it's possible that in Enoch's day his life was in danger and God wanted to spare him the agony of that death and so he scooped him up maybe at the last moment just about before he was about to be attacked by a mob. We don't know. My favorite theory, though, is this one. Is that God, God revealed to Enoch that, that there was going to be this Savior that came a second time. He was going to come a second time and He was going to judge the world. And His name was going to be Jesus. And Enoch was thinking about it and he said something like, Wow, so God, what will happen to all those people on the earth who love Jesus when Jesus comes back? What's going to happen to those guys? And God said, good question. Let me show you. And he scooped Enoch up off the earth. And he transported him through the air up to heaven. And those of you who who have read the rest of your Bible know that that's what takes place. When Jesus comes back a second time, all those who love Jesus will be transported. Those who are walking around alive will be physically levitated into the air to meet with Jesus in the air. But before that happens, those who have already died, their bodies will be resurrected from the graves and will be reunited with their souls and they will be caught up into heaven too, just like Enoch was. I like that theory. It's not biblical. It's just a thought. Ultimately, we don't know why God did, but he did. It was a great reward, great reward for Enoch. And it's pretty cool. Now, That brings us to what's the application for us. We take a look at a guy like Enoch, and and what do we we draw from that? What do we we take home? Well, if you've been here any length of time, you know that the purpose of our church is to what? I would get you all to say it together, but that's probably difficult, so I'll just say it for you. It's to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. Glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. You say, okay, John, what's that got to do with Enoch? It's got everything to do with Enoch. Because Enoch was a disciple maker. He just wasn't in the context that we think about. We think about discipleship in the context of of today, in 2016, where we've got Jesus who came and rose from the dead behind us, and we've got Jesus who's coming back in the future. And in between, Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that's the Great Commission. That's the reason we have that as a purpose statement. But outside that, long before Jesus ever came the first time, or Jesus ever came the second time, was Enoch. He was a disciple maker. Think about it. He lived in a society of ungodliness and lukewarm Christians or lukewarm God followers. He had faith that God existed. He had faith that God rewards those who seek God. He sought after God. He went after God. He he sought Him out. He, he, He walked with God. He had an intimate relationship with God. 
And that allowed him the basis to do what was really important. He was, he was unafraid to be, to be distinctly different in his culture. He wasn't afraid to stick out. And then he told people about the second coming of Jesus. And he invited them to be a God follower. He invited them to, to stop being ungodly people and to, to be godly people. And to follow God. That's the definition of a disciple. It's a follower. In Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch is commended for his faith. But he was rewarded by being scooped up off the earth and taken up into heaven for being a disciple maker. Now, today's society, our current culture, that's what disciple makers do. And so we would be wise to follow Enoch's example, to do the same sorts of things that Enoch did. Because we live in a society that's ungodly. It's prosperous, but it's ungodly. And there's a segment running through our culture of lukewarm followers of Jesus. And we should have faith that God exists. We cannot see God, and that's faith. Faith is not seeing with our eyes, it's seeing with our hearts and knowing that God exists. And we, we should have faith that, that God rewards those who seek Him. And we should seek Him. And we should walk with God and everything that that means. And we should not be afraid to stand out from our culture. We should not be afraid to stick out and be distinctively different. And we should tell our friends and neighbors about the second coming of Jesus, just like Enoch did. Because when Jesus comes back again, and he could come back today, he could come back in two minutes from now. He will execute judgment on the ungodly people. And those who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ will then go to hell. And that's a bad thing. And we should be telling them just like Enoch did. And we, like Enoch, we should try to get people to be God followers or Jesus followers, disciples. That's what disciple makers do. And like Enoch, we look forward to the reward. We look forward to the reward of being a disciple maker. And that reward is a key promise of God. That when Jesus comes back the second time, if we're alive and walking around on earth, we'll be transported in the air to meet with Jesus. And if we've already died, our bodies will be resurrected from the graves. And we'll be reconstructed in midair and our souls will join them and we'll be caught in midair too. And that's a reward that we look forward to. Because that is the reward for disciple makers. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for Enoch, for his life. Lord, even though he only gets mentioned ten times in ten verses in our entire Bible, it's clear that he was a, a disciple-maker long before discipleship was even talked about. Enoch had extraordinary faith. He believed that you exist and that even though he couldn't see you with his eyes and even though the rest of society didn't pay any attention to you, he also believed that you reward those 
who seek you, even though he had never seen it happen. Lord, we live in a society today that's similar to that, where most people live ungodly lives, and even those who worship you are mostly lukewarm. But God, we desire to be like Enoch. We, we want to seek after you. We want to walk with you. We want to be distinctly different in our culture. We want to tell people about the second coming of Jesus. We want to warn people that the Lord is going to come and is going to execute judgment on their sins. But God, we want to make disciples. We want people who follow you and your son Jesus. We want to please you. And we look forward. We look forward to the reward. Same as Enoch. To be taken up in bodily form into heaven. To live with your son Jesus forever. We thank you. Thank you for that great and precious promise and pray all of these things in the powerful, powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.